Welcome to the U.S. Max Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. Max Fellow at University College London, Kevin Middlebrook, discusses how labor rights in Mexico affect U.S. Mexican trade negotiations in his talk titled Political Change from the Outside in U.S. Trade Leverage and Labor Rights Reform in Mexico. Thank you very, very much, Rafael. Really a triple thanks, both for this extraordinarily generous introduction, for hosting us these two months, and for serving as discussant on this paper. Before I begin, I do have one important caveat. I appear here alone, but the co-author of this paper is Professor Graciela Benzusan, a long-term colleague and co-author at the WAM and Flaxo Mexico. In this paper, we, or the paper on which this presentation is based, we examine U.S.-Mexican negotiations over labor rights and Mexico's accession to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, or TPP. Our focus is on the character of bilateral interactions, particularly the ways in which external actors can influence domestic political change under conditions of asymmetrical complex interdependence. In this case, U.S. pressures caused Mexico to adopt constitutional reforms that strengthen Mexican workers' ability to form politically independent unions, elect union officials democratically by secret ballot, and protect their rights in collective bargaining. Not only did these changes affect a pillar of Mexico's political economy, but they also constituted the only known instance in which Mexico has adopted constitutional amendments in response to explicit external demand. What we specifically seek to explain is how U.S. actors induced the Mexican government to take such momentous steps after resisting for many years international pressures to address labor rights problems. And in our conclusion, uh, we consider the implications of this case uh, for future bilateral relations and particularly the prospects for expanded external influence on Mexican politics. In framing our analysis, we draw on two bodies of international relations literature, the first of which is Robert Cohane and Joseph Nye's well-known idea of complex interdependence. As Rafael has shown in his own work, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, reshaped Mexico-U.S. relations. It represented both a historic shift in Mexican foreign policy and a new institutionalization of the bilateral relationship. Despite continued asymmetry in overall power capabilities, contemporary interactions between Mexico and the United States clearly constitute an example of what Cohen and Nye defined as complex interdependence. That is, in such relationships, multiple channels connect governments and societies. Uh, the interstate issue agenda is not arranged in a consistent hierarchy. Realists would argue that security concerns always dominate. And third, a military force is not employed to settle disputes. Anyone who has read about the earlier history of U.S.-Mexican relations would certainly know just how much the relationship has changed since NAFTA took effect in 1994. It's truly remarkable, though, that although much has been written post-NAFTA about the overall Mexico-U.S. relationship, in particular topics or issues in dispute at different times, there's been almost no attention whatsoever to the dynamics of bilateral negotiations over uh, particular uh, issues at a particular time. That absence is striking because of the, comp the increasing complexity of U.S.-Mexican relations 
and the fact that several key bilateral issues are what we could call intermestic in character. That is, they're both they're simultaneously of domestic and international importance. All of that makes post-NAFTA bilateral interactions an especially inviting subject of analysis. One, for example, uh, could hypothesize that closer economic and societal integration could influence government-to-government -government negotiations by enhancing the potential leverage of transnational policy coalitions. Yet no previous study has investigated that possibility empirically. We argue that Mexico's interactions with the United States between 2011 and 2016 over labor rights and Mexico's accession to the TPP offer a compelling example of the character of bilateral negotiations under conditions of complex but asymmetrical interdependence. Freedom of association for Mexican workers was a controversial issue in the original NAFTA negotiations in the early 1990s, and international labor organizations like the ILO itself and transnational labor rights groups had repeatedly lobbied the Mexican government to enforce the labor rights that are formally guaranteed in the Constitution and by law. But for many years, the Mexican government largely blocked those pressures. And the extensive federal labor law that was uh, reforms that were enacted in 2012 contained no significant additional protections for freedom of association and the right to collective bargaining. So clearly, those issues were not on Mexico's policy agenda before the TPP negotiations started. Yet intense U.S. pressures during those negotiations caused Mexico to adopt constitutional reforms that promised to significantly improve workers' rights. The integrity of those reforms came under attack in 2017 and 2018, but a U.S.-Mexico transnational labor rights alliance successfully took advantage of the political opportunities created in the negotiations to reformulate the NAFTA, which I'll now refer to, henceforth refer to as NAFTA 2.0, to repel the threat. And that was a major victory for labor rights advocates on both sides of the border. More broadly, we argue that this case is an important example of the ways in which domestic political considerations shape international negotiations, and how those negotiations can, in turn, produce outcomes with major domestic political consequences. The foundational text on this subject, as some of you may know, and it's the second body of international relations literature on which we draw, is Robert Putnam's 1988 article titled Diplomacy and Domestic Politics, The Logic of Two-Level Games. In Putnam's metaphor, international diplomacy can be envisioned as a two-level game, and here I quote at some length. Each national political leader appears at both game boards. Across the international table sit his or her, this is written in 1988, foreign counterparts. Around the domestic table behind him or her sit party and parliamentary figures, spokespersons for domestic agencies, representatives of key interest groups, and the leader's own political advisors. The unusual complexity of this two-level game is that moves that are rational for a player at one board may be impolitic for that same player at the other board. The political complexities for the players in this two-level game are staggering. Now, as some of you may know, Putnam's framework has sometimes been employed in the study of U.S.-Latin American relations. But most applications of the two-level game in this regional context have focused on domestic international interactions shaping the formulation of a single state's foreign policy or bargaining strategy. 
One of our goals in this paper is to show how domestic calculations in both Mexico and the United States influence bilateral negotiations over late labor rights reform in Mexico. It's very unlikely that any single bargaining episode would ever encompass all of the scenarios uh, considered by Putnam and other people who have done research in this field. But Putnam's framework is very useful in focusing our attention on four major elements. First, the identity and motivations of the main actors on each side of the negotiating table, including the domestic constituencies most affected by the issues under discussion and their influence on the goals being pursued. Second, the character of domestic institutional arrangements and their potential impact on both the bargaining process, particularly the relative autonomy of the chief negotiator, and the ratification of any agreement that the negotiating parties reach. Third, transgovernmental and or transnational societal linkages that may form to influence negotiations or ratification of any final agreement. And finally, the distribution of wins and losses, both for the negotiating states and for key domestic constituencies, and the strategies that national leaders might consequently adopt to ease domestic ratification problems by paying off or giving side payments to one or more domestic interest groups that might be severely affected by the agreement that was reached. The paper that we've written looks at each of these issues in depth, but given the obvious time constraints, I'll be very brief in, in presenting some of them here. Before turning to the details of the actual case, let me say a little bit about the research method we've employed. Our reconstruction of Mexico-U.S. interactions during the TPP and the NAFTA 2.0 negotiations over labor issues draws very heavily on interviews I've done over and Graciela have done over the last year with senior government officials, trade union representatives, labor activists, and so on in both Mexico and the United States. We took this approach for the very simple reason that given the sensitivity and the very contemporary nature of these negotiations, there's really no in-depth documentary record available. Now, we understand that interviews with decision makers are invaluable, but we're also well aware that human memories are sometimes partial or faulty, and so especially on points of particular importance, we've systematically tried to find confirmation from more than one interview source, and whenever possible, from documentary reports and newspaper accounts. To better set the context, let me say something very brief about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was negotiated by 12 Pacific Basin states between February 2008 and October 2015, it was no doubt one of the most ambitious free trade agreements uh, ever attempted. Up until the time that the U.S. Uh, somewhat arbitrarily withdrew in January 2017, this 30-chapter agreement promised to expand trade among countries that together account for approximately 40 percent of global commerce. Certainly one motivation for the Obama administration was also to, counter influence, or to counterbalance the influence of China by permitting the United States to shape the rules for international trade in the 21st century. Proponents of the TPP argue that it was especially innovative in its advocacy of international labor and environmental standards. And indeed, the U.S. decision to join the TPP in 2008, what had originally been a more limited regional free trade agreement, made labor and environmental issues key topics in the multilateral negotiations that ensued over the subsequent seven years. The final TPP text includes a separate chapter on labor rights that basically embraces the ILO's 1998 Declaration on Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work. But of particular note, the United States negotiated separate bilateral labor rights agreements 
with Brunei, Malaysia, and Vietnam that were to be implemented before the TPP took effect. Uh, this very intrusive approach that the U.S. took regarding countries with notoriously poor labor rights records significantly shaped U.S.-Mexican interactions around the TPP, as I'll describe in, in just a moment. Mexico initially announced in November 2010 that it would not take part in the TPP. But just a year later, it reversed its position because of concerns that U.S. participation in the pact would allow economic competitors around the Pacific Rim to undercut its position in its principal export market, that is, the United States. Uh, Mexico, therefore, did join these multilateral negotiations in the 15th round in December 2012. The United States was, of course, the largest economy among TPP states, and it was the most insistent advocate of labor rights provisions in the agreement. So it became a de facto gatekeeper in the talks. The Mexico-U.S. negotiating agenda had several thorny issues on it, including automotive industry rules of origin, patent protection for pharmaceutical products, phytosanitary standards for agricultural products, and so forth. But labor rights were a very major point of contention. So let me now turn to the opening positions of both the United States and Mexico as they uh, uh, approach these talks. Why did the United States focus so much attention on labor rights in Mexico? Well, in essence, the Obama administration was responding both to legal requirements and to political constraints. Since the mid-1980s, U.S. domestic legislation has formally linked labor rights and trade, beginning with the 1983 Caribbean Basin Economic Recovery Act, and especially since the Trade and Tariff Act of 1984, domestic legislation requires the U.S. government to ensure that its trading partners respect such core worker protections as the rights to organize and bargain collectively. In May 2007, President George W. Bush and leading Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives agreed that all future U.S. free trade agreements, or FTAs, would recognize the core labor principles in the ILO's 1998 declaration and that labor obligations would be subject to the same general dispute settlement procedures and enforcement mechanisms as intellectual property or any other uh, commercial issue. All of these legislative departures resulted from successful domestic lobbying by the U.S. labor movement, which sought to prevent foreign countries from basing their economic competitiveness on lower labor standards. The second factor motivating the Obama administration was the political challenge of winning congressional ratification for the TPP. A majority of uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives had voted against NAFTA ratification in 1993, and in the debate over the Central American Free Trade Agreement in, I think, 2005 or 6, only 15 Democrats actually voted for the agreement. President Obama faced an even more uphill struggle in this regard regarding the TPP because many congressional Democrats were virulently opposed to well, the labor movement was virulently opposed to it, and congressional Democrats respected labor's con concerns because unions still remain important for financial and organizational support during election campaigns. Whether a significant number of Democrats in the Congress would ever have voted for the TPP remains an open question, because labor's opposition to the agreement went well beyond specific objections to its labor rights provisions. Nevertheless, the Obama administration clearly understood that demonstrating firmness on labor issues in bilateral negotiations with Mexico was an absolute essential element in their strategy to win ratification uh, in the Congress.
the commitment that senior Obama administration officials uh, shared regarding the importance of Mexican labor rights had been strongly reinforced by past Mexico-U.S. negotiations and interactions under the North American Agreement on Labor Cooperation, or NALC. Uh, this was the so-called Labor Side Agreement that was negotiated in conjunction with the original NAFTA in 1993. Uh, the NALC was historically important because it was the first time there had been an agreement linking labor rights uh, to a bilateral trade agreement. Uh, and in practice, uh, the NALC grievance cases did heighten international awareness of labor rights problems in Mexico and occasionally contributed to change in Mexican government policy but they certainly did not succeed in fundamentally altering the existing labor relations regime. And as a consequence, a wide range of U.S. actors, government officials, trade unions, labor rights activists, increasingly questioned the efficacy of the NALC procedures as a vehicle for addressing labor rights violations in Mexico. Over time, their concerns came to focus on two main issues. First, respect in practice for the constitutionally and legally guaranteed freedom of association. And second, the political independence of tripartite conciliation and arbitration boards. They're tripartite because they're comprised of labor, government, and business representatives. And these boards are responsible both for, or had been responsible, still are, responsible for resolving both workplace conflicts and for registering unions and collective work agreements. In practice, at both the federal and state level, government officials regularly obstructed the formation of politically independent unions and favored government-allied labor organizations. Those organizations, in turn, dominated representation on these conciliation and arbitration boards, and they used their positions to repel any challenge to their workplace control or efforts by rank and file to win higher wages, better working conditions, uh, higher improved benefits, and so on. So for the Obama administration, the TPP negotiations with Mexico offered an opportunity to strengthen the NAFTA-NALC labor provisions. And indeed, that's what Obama himself had promised to do in his 2008 uh, presidential primary campaign. How did Mexico approach the negotiations? Mexican officials understood from the very outset that labor rights issues would arise in the course of the negotiations. They had, in fact, discussed the matter in general terms with senior U.S. officials even before Mexico formally asked uh, to join the negotiations. Initially, they expressed willingness to adopt new labor standards under TPP auspices. Mexican officials were also aware of the multilateral debate then underway among TPP states regarding the content of a proposed labor chapter in the agreement. But even though Mexican officials appreciated how sensitive labor rights questions were in some U.S. political circles, they may not have appreciated how important the issue would become in the course of the bilateral negotiations. They may also have assumed that some previous defensive positions that Mexico had taken would still, be, would still hold. Uh, back in 1993, for example, Mexico had successfully invoked claims to national sovereignty, and it had parried many of the specific U.S. demands about the content of Mexican law and what the design of the NALC would be. In practice, in formal terms, Mexican labor law is actually more beneficial to workers than much of U.S. labor law. Mexico has also signed far more international labor organization conventions than the United States, including more of the ILO's core conventions 
than the United States. So some Mexican officials could well have it thought that they might claim a higher moral ground in the negotiations. Beyond that, Mexico's TPP negotiators could claim, and did claim quite accurately, that undertaking major reforms of national labor legislation would be extremely difficult politically. The tripart conciliation and arbitration boards were established by Article 123 of the 1917 Constitution. So any major change in them would require constitutional reform, and that would require support of two-thirds majorities in both chambers of the federal Congress and a majority of state legislatures. So it was not something easily. Equally important, both the government-allied labor movement and the Mexican private sector had long defended the legal status quo. The labor movement was certainly weaker in 2015 than it had been in 1993 uh, when the Confederation of Mexican Workers, or the CTM, had underpinned Mexican government opposition to a more expansive uh, labor side agreement. But even so, uh, the CTM did have a long record of successfully opposing labor law and political reforms that threatened its dominant position in industrial relations or its status as the official labor sector of uh, the PRI. Preserving the established labor relations regime was also very important to Mexican business. Over time, the private sector had become increasingly reliant on so-called employer protection contracts. These are agreements that are signed generally by unaccountable or corrupt leaders of employer-dominated unions, often even before a workplace is hired, and they're tolerated by complicit government officials. Uh, they, they formally meet minimum legal requirements under the federal labor law, but in practice, they give employers unchallenged control over workplace affairs. And once they're in place, the force of law protects employers from workers' attempts to renegotiate or to negotiate a new contract. After the 1980s, these protection contracts became ubiquitous in some of the country's most important uh, economic activities, including the auto parts industry, for example. And because Mexico's post-1980s export-led development model had relied heavily on low labor costs as a basis of international comparative advantage, the private sector regarded control over workplace relations as vital to the country's economic success. So the nature of business interests substantially raised the barriers to domestic labor reform. Nevertheless, uh, the administration of President Enrique Peña Nieto was not absolutely opposed to any change in labor law or policy. In 2015, as part of a broad government-sponsored consultation on ways to improve citizen access to, judge, to justice, uh, CIDE, the research university in Mexico City, had proposed substantial reform of conciliation and arbitration boards and their transfer from the executive branch to the judiciary. Senior administration officials uh, under Peña Nieto also showed sensitivity to the sustained criticism that the ILO had voiced regarding protection contracts and restrictions on freedom of association. There was, moreover, building pressure on this issue from some international brand name companies. Adidas, Nike, Patagonia, and so on have manufacturing operations in Mexico. And a number of them had openly condemned protection contracts and worked to ensure that the contract agreement signed by their suppliers uh, actually conformed to these companies' own codes of corporate conduct and to international labor rights standards. But overall, domestic opposition to major reforms that would alter the labor status quo were very strong. 
When U.S. officials first pressed their Mexican counterparts on labor rights issues, Mexico argued that the Peña Nieto administration was prepared to undertake procedural reforms to improve the operation of conciliation and arbitration boards, but they resisted constitutional reforms, arguing that labor matters were a question of national sovereignty. U.S. negotiators quickly rejected that position, making it clear that Mexico's accession to the TPP would require significant reforms to address persistent labor rights problems and to meet new TPP standards. The question then was how the Mexican government would address the issue. Mexican negotiators insisted that the United States respect Mexico's sovereignty on the matter, and they ruled out as completely unacceptable in domestic political terms a separate labor consistency plan like the bilateral accords that the United States was negotiating with Brunei, Malaysia, and Vietnam. In essence, Mexico did not want to be publicly lumped in the same category as countries that were notorious for labor rights violations. The U.S. Trade Representative, which was overseeing the, or conducting the negotiations, was in fact under public pressure from Democratic congressional representatives with labor ties to reach a TPP-linked agreement with Mexico like those it signed with these other three countries. But on this point, Mexican officials held very firm. U.S. negotiators fully understood that they were discussing politically sensitive issues with a NAFTA partner and a strategic U.S. ally. They nevertheless maintained their pressure for a labor consistency plan until nearly the end of the TPP negotiating process, perhaps as a way of extracting concessions from Mexico on other issues. But in the end, they accepted a Mexican commitment to formulate independently significant labor rights reforms. The U.S. further agreed that bilateral, bilateral discussions of the matter would be very closely held and that their, public, their joint public position would be that, despite the background pressures, any reforms that Mexico enacted were undertaken entirely at the initiative of the Mexican government. So phrased in Putnam's terms, U.S. negotiators adopted positions in order to expand the Mexican government's autonomy to address labor rights issues and to avoid negative reverberations in domestic politics that would have narrowed the possible windset. Even so, consensus on the U.S. side regarding the importance of the issue placed the labor rights question at or near the top of its TPP agenda with Mexico. U.S. officials engaged in the diplomatic offense equivalent of a full-court press uh, in order to underscore the depth of their commitment. U.S. Department of Labor officials intensively engaged with their Mexican counterparts, following in close detail, really line by line and word by word, the Mexican side's development of reform proposals. They also consulted extensively with independent labor law experts in Mexico so that they would deepen their own understanding of specific legal provisions being proposed by Mexico and their likely impact on worker-employer relations. Vice President Joe Biden, who chaired the government Mexico high-level economic dialogue, stressed the importance of labor rights reforms both in his interactions with Mexican cabinet officials and directly with President Peña Nieto. Uh, Representative Sandra Levin, a Democrat from Michigan and a principal author of the May 2007 agreement with the Bush administration over trade and labor rights, as well as members of other U.S. congressional delegations to Mexico, 
made clear to Mexican officials that democratic legislative support for Mexico's accession to the TPP required serious attention to labor issues. And indeed, Nancy Pelosi, who was at the time minority leader in the House of Representatives, delivered the same message directly to President Peña Nieto in a private message with him in May 2016. And most important, uh, President Obama, at the urging of Secretary of Labor Tom Perez, uh, personally requested decisive Mexican action on labor rights issues in the course of at least two telephone conversations with President Peña Nieto regarding TPP negotiations. These intense, sustained pressures, which actually continued after the formal conclusion of TPP negotiations in October 2015, bore fruit in ways that actually surprised some of the U.S. officials involved. Uh, in late 2015, uh, first, in, in late 2015, the Mexican government, President Peña Nieto, submitted to the Congress, uh, despite the intense pressure from Mexican business organizations, ILO Convention 98 on freedom of collective bargaining. Second, in early December 2015, Peña Nieto announced he intended to reform the labor justice system, and in April 2016, he announced proposed constitutional reforms that abolished the conciliation and arbitration system created in 2017 and transferred all labor justice matters from the executive to the judicial branch at both the federal and state levels. Moreover, his proposed constitutional reforms gave constitutional recognition to freedom of collective bargaining, the need to accredit workers' consent in contract negotiations, and secret balloting in union elections. Even more radically, the initiative transferred all authority over conciliation and the authority to grant unions legal recognition and register collective contracts to a new national agency whose president would be selected in a procedure similar to that used to select or to appoint Supreme Court justices. And a separate legal initiative or reform of the federal labor law proposed reforms that would in a variety of specific ways combat employer protection contracts. So taken together, uh, these initiatives for constitu constitutional and labor law reform more or less comprehensively addressed the main points that leading U.S. unions had long articulated regarding labor rights violations in Mexico. The question that naturally arises is why the Mexican government was prepared to take such momentous steps after resisting for years U.S. and other international pressures to address labor rights shortcomings. And as you can certainly imagine, multiple political considerations were at play. In the first instance, senior Mexican government officials counted upon the closely held character of the bilateral TPP negotiations over labor rights to limit domestic dissent. And in part because they publicly denied in the strongest terms any link between the TPP and domestic labor reform, they proved remarkably successful in doing so. There was very little public discussion of any kind during this process, and the secrecy of the negotiations uh, prevented or helped block public opposition by some labor leaders. Moreover, the Peña Nieto administration could rely on the PRI's legislative majority and strong party discipline to ensure ratification of constitutional reforms, and those expectations were borne out. Uh, the reforms were, in the end, unanimously approved in the Senate 
and by an overwhelming majority in the Federal Chamber of Deputies. And following approval by a majority of state legislatures, the constitutional reforms took effect in February 2017. In broader terms, making significant concessions to the U.S. on labor issues was the necessary price for an outcome, that is, accession to the TPP, that was both strategically vital for Mexico and politically important to Peña Nieto. Senior Mexican government officials judged that when confronted with the need to address labor rights questions that had long been an irritant in bilateral relations, it was preferable to adopt in-depth measures rather than to try to defend piecemeal reforms. The negative attention that the ILO investigations and NALT cases brought concerning protection contracts and the fact that protection contracts were increasingly identified in public attitudes with endemic corruption that affects Mexican public affairs were one consideration in that regard. And finally, again in Putnam's terms, senior government officials calculated that they could reach side agreements with domestic business and labor losers that would limit their opposition at the time that the president announced the proposed reforms and then pushed them through the Senate. Both government officials and business and labor opponents understood, based on their past experiences with labor law reform, that enacting constitutional changes would not necessarily overturn all elements of the status quo. The content of the secondary legislation that would be necessary to implement the reforms would be of crucial importance. That lay in the future, and it was still to be negotiated. Moreover, the concerns of the two dominant labor confederations, the CTM and the Revolutionary Confederation of Workers and Peasants, or CROC, were muffled by assurances they received from the executive branch that they would receive or they would benefit from the contracts that were to be awarded for the construction of a new Mexico City International Airport, which was the country's largest public infrastructure project in a century. But as momentous as all this was, the international struggle over labor rights in Mexico did not actually end with the 2017 constitutional reforms. Peña Nieto's proposed labor law reforms were actually never debated in the Congress, and conservative business and labor groups maneuvered quite successfully to influence the alternative the, the, the draft uh, implementing legislation that would have limited the democratizing effects of the constitutional reforms in several ways. The timing of those debates linked the matter to Mexico-U.S. negotiations over NAFTA 2.0, which had been launched in August 2017. In December 2017, two PRI senators, uh, representative respectively the CTM and the CROC, introduced a legislative initiative that would have undercut the constitutional reforms, democratizing goals in a variety of ways. But most conspicuously, the the technical council that was responsible for running this new agency for contract registration and union registration would be comprised of labor, business, and government representatives. That is, a traditional tripartite arrangement that ensured the majority representation of business and old guard labor organizations in the agency responsible for implementing democratic labor reform. So it was, in other words, basically putting the fox in charge of guarding the hen house. Now, in sharp contrast to the secret U.S.-Mexican negotiations over the TPP, the negotiations over this, or the, the fight over this secondary legislation bill became highly public, and Mexican independent unions and labor rights advocates and unions in the United States mobilized against it in a variety of ways. 
First, the politically independent National Union of Workers in Mexico, the UNT, worked with the PRD to introduce its own secondary legislation initiative. And among other points, it rejected a tripartite structure for this new national labor agency. It also emphasized secret balloting in union elections and in the negotiation and approval of collective contracts. Second, opposition forces sought to raise public awareness regarding the controversial bill and its probable impact. Their principal vehicle was something called the Citizen Observatory on Labor Reform, which was a network of some 1,400 academic analysts, independent union leaders, labor lawyers, and labor rights activists that formed in Mexico to follow debates over implementing the 2017 reforms. Their reports provided valuable, timely information to a sympathetic Mexican media uh, allies and to international labor allies. And third, Mexican unionists and labor rights activists appealed to their international, especially U.S. allies. They were, in, in, in effect, drawing upon transnational social capital developed among North American labor organizations during the original NAFTA debates and during subsequent NALC grievance cases. The AFL-CIO and leading U.S. industrial unions strongly mobilized against this problematic secondary legislation, and they sought to take maximum advantage of the leverage they had because of ongoing negotiations over NAFTA 2.0. Among other steps, over the course of just two days in April 2018, U.S. unions coordinated an urgent letter from 107 Democratic representatives and senators to U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, in which they expressed deep concern that the proposed secondary legislation would, quote, gut the 2017 reform process, undermine, quote, ongoing effort to create a fair playing field for U.S. workers and U.S. businesses through NAFTA renegotiation, and pose, quote, a potentially devastating obstacle to the success of the NAFTA renegotiation. Once the letter was made public, U.S. union activists worked with Mexican media contacts to ensure that the letter was widely published in Mexico on the very morning that the Mexican Senate convened to discuss the controversial implementing legislation. So it brought as much public pressure as, as possible to bear on the issue. And it was successful. Just a week before the end of the Mexican Senate's regular session, Peña Nieto administration suspended consideration of the secondary legislation bill. The Minister of Labor and Social Welfare announced that the government would then hold four public consultative fora during June and July 2018 in an effort to reach broad consensus on the content of the implementing legislation with the goal of passing it in a special congressional session in September. But none of that happened because, as we know, Lopez Obrador soundly defeated the PRI in the 2018 presidential election, and at least on labor issues in the context of the NAFTA 2.0 negotiations, the dynamic dramatically changed. Here, too, it's likely that external and international factors influenced the Mexican government's decision. On the external side of things, the very real prospect that approval of the bill would heighten U.S. congressional opposition to an eventual NAFTA 2.0 agreement was certainly of concern to USTR Lighthizer, who understood that U.S. labor's concerns had to be addressed if he were to achieve his goal of assembling a bipartisan congressional coalition in favor of any final uh, trade agreement. 
Lighthizer explicitly made this point to his principal Mexican negotiating counterpart, Minister of the Economy, Ildefonso Guajardo. On the domestic side, when the Minister of Labor announced suspension of Senate consideration of the legislative initiative, he cited the rarefied political environment during the final phases of the Mexican presidential campaign. Uh, for some officials, the negative publicity that approval of this bill would have generated at a time when the PRI's candidate was running third in the opinion polls was a consideration. However, given that the NAFTA itself, NAFTA 2.0 itself, had not yet been finalized, it's also likely that senior Mexican officials hesitated to incur any additional risk in the highly unpredictable negotiations over a revised trade agreement that they considered absolutely critical to Mexico's economic future. Whatever the specific calculations, the government's decision to pull the, or to freeze the bill constituted a major political victory for pro-democracy labor forces in both Mexico and the United States. And it cleared the way for Lopez Obrador's transition team to draft implementing legislation more congruent with the goals of the original 2017 reforms. That legislation is now before the Mexican Congress. Now, I realize I've already spoken a bit longer than I had intended, but let me offer a few conclusions. As I indicated at the outset, our goal in this paper is to contribute to the study of U.S.-Mexican and U.S.-Latin American relations by illumining the actual conduct of bilateral negotiations under conditions of asymmetrical complex interdependence. One key issue that I think arises from this case study concerns Mexican officials' capacity to defend national sovereignty under such conditions. On several occasions from the 1940s through the early 1960s, Mexico did prove capable of managing relations with the United States so as to protect national decision-making autonomy. During the original 1991-1993 NAFTA negotiations, when the overriding U.S. interest in expanded access to the Mexican market enhanced Mexico's bargaining leverage, Mexican negotiators were very successful at turning aside U.S. demands to include the, the energy sector in the agreement and to expand the scope of the labor side agreement. Moreover, uh, President Carlos Salinas de Gortari openly rejected calls by U.S. critics to make approval of the agreement conditional on political reform in Mexico. In contrast, negotiations with the United States over accession to the TPP demonstrated, at least in our view, that Mexican officials may now have considerably less freedom of maneuver in some uh, bilateral affairs. Mexico's standing as NAFTA partner and strategic U.S. ally did offer the Peña Nieto administration some advantages. Even though labor rights issues in Mexico were a far more immediate concern to U.S. trade unions and their democratic congressional allies than were labor affairs in several small Southeast Asian countries with a far lower trade pro profile in the United States, the Obama administration departed from the model it adopted for labor rights negotiations with Brunei, Malaysia, and Vietnam at Mexico's request. Mexico acceded to Mexico's sovereignty concerns by agreeing that the, Mex that the matter would be addressed by Mexican legislation. The mutual agreement to keep negotiations over the issue secret also increased the Mexican government's domestic decision-making autonomy and its ability to bring the TPP negotiations to a successful conclusion. But it's important to emphasize that Mexico was not an equal partner at the bargaining table on this question. 
U.S. demands for major labor reforms as a condition of Mexico's accession to the TPP in essence constituted an ultimatum to which Mexico finally agreed. Although the Peña Nieto administration implemented constitutional reforms mainly in response to external pressures, the TPP episode and its episode also revealed significant shifts over time in both Mexican officials' perceptions of the national interest and the changing positions of domestic social political actors. For the, Mexican, for the senior Mexican officials involved, there were no major issues that were clearly off the negotiating agenda, as there had been in the early 1990s uh, and in earlier periods as well. And on labor rights questions, international influences, especially U.S. condemnation of protection contracts and altered domestic circumstances, including the reduced political influence of old guard labor organizations, persuaded Mexican officials to accept important constitutional changes as the necessary price for maintaining competitive access to the U.S. market. And in the struggle in 2017-2018 over the secondary legislation to implement these reforms, the, the domestic actors best positioned to take advantage of the political opportunities created by the NAFTA 2.0 negotiations were the pro-democracy unions and labor rights activists capable of mobilizing international allies. Now, some analysts have argued that U.S. government interactions with Latin American countries over intermestic issues necessarily place Latin American states at a negotiating disadvantage because U.S. domestic actors have much more policymaking access. But in this specific case, we think that interpretation is open to debate. What was decisive was the character of the TPP negotiations. That is, it was the up or down nature of the accession decision that caused Mexican officials to exceed the U.S. pressures in what is, in Weberian terms, an area of core state sovereignty. So external pressures exercised at a particular historical moment in a specific bargaining context reconfigured an important part of the Mexican political landscape. Overall, this case demonstrates the ways in which domestic political considerations affect Mexico-U.S. bilateral negotiations, and it also suggests ways in which a politically open and internationalized Mexico potentially offers U.S. government and transnational actors greater scope to influence its domestic politics. One necessarily qualification, though, is that even though the United States has long employed economic leverage in bilateral relations with Mexico, the up or down character of the TPP negotiations no doubt gave U.S. officials far greater leverage than they might ordinarily exercise in the day-to-day -day course of bilateral interactions. What may be a longer-term portent in Mexico-U.S. relations is the influence that transnational societal actors wielded in defending the 2017 constitutional reforms. This was an episode that very impressively demonstrated that accumulated transnational social capital can sometimes be brought to bear in a way that favors progressive political change. And on that optimistic note, I will close. Thank you. listening to the U.S. Mex Today podcast, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. 
The center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.